0: Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan1132. I'm Jim Witteveen. It's good to be here with you once again. This is episode 95. And once again, uh, from Brazil, this is a low-tech episode. No entrance and outro music and uh, no video. It's audio only this week once again. As I have some more information to share, a final episode dealing with the month of pride between quotation marks. And I put that word, pride between quotation marks, for a, for a good reason, because I'm going to speak about uh, what it is that is actually being celebrated during Pride Month. And the, the dangerous, the destructive behaviors and lifestyles that are being put on display uh, in public areas for children and adults alike, and being celebrated by corporations and being celebrated by politicians and by political parties, including conservative political parties. Uh, so it's not just uh, liberals. We can't say that it's the it's the left that's doing it. The right, so, so the so-called right, is also uh, actively involving themselves in the promotion of the pride agenda between quotation marks. And this uh, in this episode, I'm going to be speaking about uh, an article that I found, or actually it's a it's an entire uh, edition of a journal that I found, uh, the Journal of Technology and Society called New Atlantis. And if you want to check out the website and if you're interested in issues of technology and science and their relationship to uh, society and uh, and culture, this uh, The New Atlantis is well worth your time and well worth checking out. And this is a special report called Sexuality and Gender, Findings from the Biological, Psychological, and Social Sciences. The authors, the chief authors, are Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh. And it was published in, in the fall of 2016. Now, Lawrence Mayer, first about the, about the authors, Lawrence Mayer is an epidemiologist trained in psychiatry. And Paul R. McHugh, according to the uh, the biography included in the article, says, arguably the most important American psychiatrist of the last half century. Former chief of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Hospital, which puts him in an interesting position, as we heard last week about Johns Hopkins and its involvement in uh, the transgender, transsexual movement and as a forerunner in that movement and a, and a promoter of that movement, the uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University or the, the Johns Hopkins Medical Center, uh, being uh, in that, on the forefront of that arena and the promotion. So Paul McHugh finds himself on the opposite side of, uh, of a lot of these issues a man with decades of experience, and a professor emeritus. Now, according to this study, uh, things are not nearly as clear scientifically as the powers that be would like us to believe. They speak about sexual orientation, so there's three parts. Sexual orientation is the first part. Sexuality, mental health outcomes, and social stress is the second part and Gender Identity is the third part. It's an extensive report, and I'm largely working from the executive summary with a couple of things added in. Uh, But the executive summary covers, obviously, what's included in this special report. So first of all, they talk about sexual orientation. And they say that the idea, first of all, that sexual orientation is innate or that it's biologically fixed is not supported by scientific evidence. So there's not uh, sufficient scientific evidence for people to say that they were, uh, to use a phrase that's well known, that they were born this way. Uh, that the, the evidence is not there to show that sexual orientation is something inherent to the, to the human being and not something that is chosen later on in life or something that is brought on later on in life. Now there's also, in the second place, there's no compelling causal biological explanations for human sexual orientation. The authors note that there are minor differences in brain structures and brain activity between homosexual and heterosexual people, but the findings that show that there are these minor differences don't show whether those differences are innate, whether people are born with those differences or they're they're naturally occurring differences between people, or whether they are the result of environmental or psychological factors. So they can see some differences in brain activity and the way the brains work, but the question is whether that's a cause of uh, non-heterosexual behavior or whether it's actually the result, whether... The, the, the result of uh, living this lifestyle and uh, taking part in these sexual activities uh, actually causes these changes to the human brain. So that's an, that's an open question. The next point is that sexual orientation, according to the authors, may be, according to studies, quite fluid over the life course for some people. So uh, people who have participated in homosexual acts uh, don't necessarily continue along the lines or, or who experience uh, same-sex attraction uh, don't necessarily continue to have same-sex attraction throughout their lives. One study, the authors say, estimates that as many as 80% of male adolescents who report same-sex attractions no longer do so as adults. So that's an also an important point that... Uh, emphasizes the fact that there, is, there can be, and there, there often is, in 80% in this according to this study, in 80% of the cases, that the, the homosexual same-sex attraction does not continue. And then compared to heterosexuals, and, and this point I find is uh, extremely important, non-heterosexuals are about two to three times as likely to have experienced childhood sexual abuse so two to three times as likely to have experienced childhood sexual abuse. Non-heterosexual males are five times more likely to report sexual abuse as the heterosexual population. So five times as many homosexual or bisexual or or what have you males are uh, five times as many of them have experienced sexual abuse in comparison to the heterosexual population. And some researchers, and, and a lot of the, the research that f- comes up with these findings, uh, give reasons and try to uh, continue to uh, support the, the, the narrative and, and give excuses or, or alternate explanations. But some of the researchers make this, uh, this uh, hypothesis, or, or offer this hypothesis, that sexual minority individuals, uh, interesting phrase, are more likely to be targeted for sexual abuse, as youths who are perceived to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual are more likely to be bullied by their peers. But that's conjecture. It's a hypothesis. There's nothing been proven about that. Another difference is that among homosexuals, there are far higher rates of family dysfunction And according to a 2001 study, 46% of homosexual men and 22% of homosexual women report that they'd experienced childhood sexual abuse. Now, this becomes particularly striking when the comparison is made with heterosexual men and heterosexual women. 7% of heterosexual men, say, report that they experienced childhood sexual abuse, a number that's obviously still... Uh, ridiculously high and uh, and something that, that needs to concern all of us. And 1% of heterosexual women have reported childhood sexual abuse. So just, just look at those numbers again. 46% of homosexual men reporting uh, childhood sexual abuse in comparison with 7% of heterosexual men. 22% of homosexual women in comparison with 1% of heterosexual women. Those differences are very large and I believe, it seems to me, that those differences are very important when it comes to outcomes in people's lives. The second section in the special report is on sexuality, mental health outcomes, and social stress. So, what are the mental health outcomes for non-heterosexual people? Well, compared to the general population, Non-heterosexual subpopulations are at an elevated risk for a variety of adverse health and mental health outcomes. And here are some of them. First of all, uh, one and a half times uh, a risk of anxiety disorders, uh, two times the rate of depression, one and a half times risk of substance abuse, and two and a half times risk of suicide. Now, for transgender, for transsexual people, Uh, when it comes to suicide, the statistics are even worse. The rate of lifetime suicide attempts across all ages for transgender individuals is around 41%, compared to under 5% in the overall population. Now, once again, there are attempts made to explain that, and explaining that uh, this high suicide rate is because of social stressors. Things like discrimination, stigma, Uh, these contribute to the elevated risk of poor mental health outcomes, according to the interpretation of some researchers. But the authors of this study, of this special report, uh, emphasize the fact that the social stress model needs more high-quality studies to be a useful tool. In other words, there's not enough evidence to actually prove that this is the case, and that this is not something that is a, a part of the or, or perhaps related to what leads people into these lifestyles in the first place. So that, that, that number about the tra- uh, transgender suicide attempts, the rates, again, it's 41% compared to under 5% in the overall population. So the mental health outcomes for non-heterosexual people are much worse. One and a half times higher risk of anxiety disorders, twice the rate of depression, one and a half times risk of substance abuse, and two and a half times risk of suicide. The third section of the special report is on gender identity. And uh, what we hear, the the accepted wisdom uh, that we hear regularly, uh, all around us, in, uh, in every part of, uh, of society, is that gender identity is independent of biological sex. So, you can be a male, and you can identify as a female, it's completely independent. Uh, you can be a female and identify as a male, uh, and uh, that's uh, completely not, uh, not tied together. But uh, this hypothesis, that gender identity is independent of biological sex, is not supported by scientific evidence. What are the the numbers? A recent estimate, and remember this is 2016, is that 0.6% of American adults identify as a gender that doesn't correspond with their biological sex. So 0.6%. I would imagine that as of 2023, that number has risen, because of the social contagion nature of the the gender identity movement and the the transgender movement uh, but at this point at this time in, t- in 2016 it was 0.6 percent the authors of the, the study say that there's no evidence for a neurobiological basis for cross-gender identification so once again there is no tie to neurological issues or biological issues or or, uh, the the idea that people are are born this way so so somebody can be born in the wrong body there's no evidence for a, a neurological or biological basis for somebody uh, a man to identify as a woman or a boy to identify as a girl or vice versa but then when you, when we get to the issue of those who have sex reassignment surgery those who undergo hormone treatments which is uh, something that's being promoted among young people and among children, the facts are clear that adults who have undergone sex reassignment surgery continue to have a higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. Transsexuals already, even those who do don't undergo sex reassignment surgery, already have poor outcomes. Often they're 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 promised or or the idea, is, is promoted that if they could only have that sex reassignment surgery, if they could have a sex change operation, that they would be at lower risk of suicide. And parents are told, well, if you don't allow your child to transition to the opposite sex, you're driving them towards suicide. And if they can transition, they're going to have better outcomes. Well, the facts don't line up with that claim. Sex reassigned individuals, people who have had sex change operations, are five times as likely to commit suicide. So, five hundred percent increase in suicide or, or uh, in suicide rates, uh, or to attempt to commit suicide. They are nineteen times as likely to die by suicide. Nineteen times as likely to die uh, as likely to die by suicide than uh, people who have not had the sex change surgery. So the, the, the statistics uh, absolutely and, and strongly uh, negate or, or, or deny the reality that sex change operations can in, improve mental health outcomes among those who suffer from gender dysphoria. It doesn't help, and in fact, it may even make it worse. And regarding children and the, the idea that children can knowingly and knowledgeably consent to sex reassignment or uh, sex change surgery or hormone treatments to uh, change their sex, only a minority of children who experience cross gender identification, so uh, boys who identify or believe that they identify as girls, or girls who believe they identify as boys, only a minority of them will continue to do so into adolescence or adulthood. So, in other words, it's often it's a phase that some children go through, identifying themselves, girls identifying themselves as boys, boys identifying themselves as girls, which means that the pressure to have them change their sex because of improved outcomes, supposed improved outcomes in the future, is completely bogus. There's no evidence for it. And so the conclusion of the authors of the study is that there is no evidence that all children who express gender atypical thoughts or behavior should be encouraged to become transgender. Perhaps they need counseling. Perhaps they need to have... uh, some kind of intervention done in their lives, because obviously there's, according to the other statistics, there's a high chance that they have been abused, whether sexually or physically or emotionally, or they come from a dysfunctional family. They, they had uh, absent parents or parents uh, who did not uh, or are not doing what they should be doing as parents, and in fact are... Uh, placing their children in harm's way by the way that they're raising them. So there's no evidence that these children should be encouraged to become transgender. So that's that's what we're hearing this month, in this Pride Month, that we need to encourage these kinds of things. We need to encourage this kind of lifestyle choice. We need to encourage uh, pride in these non-majority sexual orientations. And I wanted to conclude by taking a look at an article uh, written a number of years ago by Dr. Timothy J. Daly from the Family Research Council on the negative health effects of homosexuality. So what is actually being encouraged? And what is there to take pride in? Well, first of all, instability and promiscuity typically characterize homosexual relationships. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, from 1994 to 1997, uh, the proportion of homosexuals reporting to have engaged in uh, risky, between quotation marks, sexual behaviors has increased uh, and the use of uh, uh, how shall I put this? without getting into too much detail. Uh, the use of protective measures declined. Uh, the proportion of men reporting to have multiple sex partners and unprotected sex increased from 236 to 33%. Uh, going through the list here, a lot of the statistics have to do with HIV and AIDS. Uh, In a study of uh, 2,583 older homosexuals published in the Journal of Sex Research, uh, the study found that only 2.7% of older homosexuals claimed to have had sex with one partner only. The most common response given by 21.6% of the respondents was of having 101 to 500 lifetime sex partners. According to another study, 24% of the respondents said they have more than 100 sexual partners in their lifetime. Several respondents suggested including a category of those who have had more than 1,000 sexual partners. Another study says that few homosexual relationships last longer than two years, with many men reporting hundreds of lifetime partners, and even among those... Uh, in those homosexual relationships in which the partners consider themselves to be in a committed relationship, committed doesn't really mean the same thing as committed in a uh, normal heterosexual marriage. In a study of uh, 156 men in homosexual relationships, only seven couples have a total, ex- totally exclusive sexual relationship these men have all been together for less than 5 years also the average male homosexual live-in relationship lasts between 2 and 3 years so the, the this this sheds a different light on the demand for uh, recognition of homosexual marriage as well and what that actually signified because was it a fact that homosexuals wanted to be allowed to marry in the same way as heterosexual couples? Is this a widespread desire among homosexuals? When you think about the astonishing rates of promiscuity, it hardly seems so. Continuing with more uh, health issues among homosexuals, HPV, human papillomavirus, which also leads to anal cancer and cervical cancer, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, gonorrhea, and uh, strange kinds of of gonorrhea as well, associated with homosexual behavior, syphilis, uh, which is transmitted uh, through homosexual sex, sex acts, gay bowel syndrome, proctitis, proctocolitis, Enteritis uh, and homosexual men are at the largest uh, risk or in the largest risk category and specifically HIV as well. More on the list is uh, things like anal cancer, other cancer risks, compulsive behaviors. So, such as uh, abusing alcohol, suffering from other compulsive behaviors, difficulties with other aspects of life. And then, the rates of violence within homosexual relationships, which which are also uh, much higher than they are among heterosexuals. Interestingly, and this is not something that you'll hear uh, broadcast far and wide, in the uh, uh, support, or because it doesn't support the dominant narrative, uh, the an interesting fact and an important one is that married women in traditional families experience the lowest rate of violence compared with women in other types of relationships. Homosexual and lesbian relationships are far more violent than our traditional married households. The incidence of domestic violence among gay men is nearly double than, that, than the incidence of domestic violence in the heterosexual population. And slightly more than half of lesbian respondents to a survey reported that they had been abused by a female partner. And the most frequently indicated forms of abuse were verbal, emotional, psychological abuse and combined physical and psychological abuse. And this this article also speaks to the high incidence of mental health problems among homosexuals and lesbians. A national survey of lesbians found that 75% of the respondents in a large survey had uh, undergone counseling of some sort, many for treatment of long-term depression or sadness. Uh, 37% had been physically abused. 32% had been raped or sexually attacked. 19% had been involved in incestuous relationships while growing up. 21% had thoughts of suicide, sometimes or often, and 18% had actually tried to kill themselves. So there's a very strong correlation between suicide and suicide attempts and homosexuality. A study of 1,007 individuals found that those classified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual were significantly more likely to have had mental health problems. And uh, there's also a caution in that study against speculations, which I mentioned earlier, that uh, the view that widespread prejudice against homosexual people causes them to be unhappy or worse, to be mentally ill. So that, again, that's a commonly heard uh, explanation for these Uh, worse outcomes, mental health outcomes for homosexuals, but it's far from being proven. And finally, reduced lifespan. A study published in the International Journal of Epidemiology on the mortality rates of homosexuals concluded that they have a significantly reduced life expectancy. In a major Canadian centre, life expectancy at at age 20 for gay and bisexual men is 8 to 20 years less than for all men. If the same pattern of mortality were to continue, we estimate that nearly half of gay and bisexual men currently aged 20 years will not reach their 65th birthday. Under even the most liberal assumptions, gay and bisexual men in this urban centre are now experiencing a life expectancy similar to that experienced by all men in Canada in the year 1871. So this is; these are just some of the, the results of homosexual lifestyles and homosexual behavior. And universally negative and destructive, damaging mentally, physically, and not to mention spiritually. And this is what the nations are being encouraged and urged to celebrate. And people who engage in these practices are being uh, urged to celebrate them and to have pride in who they are. If this were any other kind of activity, you just have to think of uh, things like obesity. Well, even obesity is uh, uh, being... uh, addressed in a woke and politically correct way today but but things like smoking behaviors like smoking which are actively discouraged and uh, and and smokers being vilified because of the damage that's done physically to them the same is not being done for homosexuals and for homo- for those who engage in homosexual practices clearly which has far worse results than any other kind of lifestyle decision or lifestyle choice that people make. So we need to ask, why is that? And why is it that these kinds of results and these kinds of studies are swept under the rug or why they're uh, given explanations, well, the higher suicide rates are because of bullying and because of uh, a lack of acceptance in society, etc., etc., when there's no proof for that. In fact, there's evidence that mitigates against that. Why is it that pride is being placed in such a destructive and such a damaging way of life? And why is it being promoted? Why is it being promoted in schools? Why is aberrant sexual behavior being actively promoted in Canadian schools where material, disgusting material published by Planned Parenthood, for example, has been supposedly mistakenly handed out in Uh, Canadian elementary schools. Why is that? And why is the agenda in the mainstream not being challenged, but in fact being celebrated? Well, in the face of that, we need to, as Christians, what we need to do is we need to declare that real love doesn't mean affirming people in self-destructive behavior. It doesn't mean affirming people in lifestyles that lead to far higher rates of substance abuse, far higher rates of suicide, far higher rates of a multitude of physical problems, emotional problems. So showing love to those who are caught and trapped in these kinds of lifestyles, which obviously when you look at the the numbers and, uh, and especially when it comes to the numbers of sexual partners that, that particularly male homosexuals have, that there is a huge addiction, compulsion uh, aspect to this kind of behavior. When men can count 500 to 1,000 or more than 1,000 sexual partners, there's a serious problem there. And a serious problem that even goes way beyond the uh, the command of God that uh, He made us male and female, and that marriage is a commitment of a lifetime. That one sexual partner is what God requires of us. When you think of five sexual partners, or ten, or a hundred, well, that's that's a lot. But when you get into five hundred to a thousand, that becomes something pathological. And the lifestyle in the male homosexual uh, subculture and the, the in previous uh, decades prior to the HIV-AIDS epidemic, the, the use of bathhouses and uh, meeting places and hookup places for people to have anonymous sex with numerous other people Shows that there is a serious problem with this. This is not something to take pride in, but it's something to be struggled against. And it's something that, if if we really love our neighbor, we will speak about these things. This is not homophobia. This is not hatred of those who who choose alternate lifestyles. But ultimately, this is uh, these things need to be said out of a spirit of love and concern for our neighbor. And for those who are suffering, those who are suffering mentally, those who are suffering or will suffer physically or have suffered in the past abuse of all kinds, how are they being counseled? How are, how are they being uh, encouraged to deal with those traumas from the past and to, to, uh, to get beyond them and to uh, not live... And, and make their decisions on the base, basis of those things, those horrible things that have often happened to them. How do we deal with that? Well, we, we deal with that, first of all, by speaking the truth in love. And love and speaking the truth go hand in hand. So th- this is something that we need to do. These things are not comfortable to speak about at the best of times. But when the tide of the culture is going against us, and when it becomes, when accusations are made of, of you're, you're hateful when you say things like this, or when you report things like this, or just read things like this uh, in a public forum, well, when, when that happens, it becomes even more difficult to, to speak out about, about these things. But the fact is that we need to do that. As Christians, we need to do that. As churches, we need to do that. And, and you know, what, because the evidence shows. That the way that God arranged things, and this is no surprise, in wisdom he created the world, the way of wisdom is living according to his created structures because they work. And just that that one statistic about those though the the women who are the least likely to report being abused are married women, married women in heterosexual marriages. Which is uh, completely, seems almost counterintuitive when you hear the over, overwhelming message that's proclaimed in our society that, that talk, masculinity is toxic, marriage is bad for women, etc., etc. It goes on and on. The fact remains that God's way works. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to make sure that we don't get sucked in to believing that it's loving to accept these things, which so often is the case as Christians are, are manipulated into saying, well, if you don't approve or if you don't grant your approval or somehow allow for uh, homosexuality in the church and uh, liberalize the, the teaching of the church on these issues, that you're hateful and you're not accepting and you're not loving your neighbor, Well, loving your neighbor once again means telling the truth, especially when somebody is is on the edge of a cliff and about to jump off, and that's what they want to do. Well, loving them is not affirming them in their decision because that decision is going to lead to them uh, splattered below on the bottom of the cliff uh, as a dead person. The same thing applies here. Loving your neighbor, includes speaking the truth to your neighbor and speaking the truth uh, about the reality of life in this world that was created and arranged by God in his wisdom and uh, for the benefit of us as people who are created in his image. Those who ultimately uh, give themselves over to these sinful lifestyles are in fact becoming something less than human and that that seems to be very harsh and very strong but but it's the result of that is clear in the results that we just heard in these various studies and why why do i say that well it's because god created us in his image male and female he created us and he gave us a mandate and he gave us that mandate to to fulfill now Ultimately, because of the fall into sin, there are so many ways in which we don't fulfill that mandate as we should. And what we need is Christ. We need to be united to Christ by faith, and that's that's the gospel message. The gospel message is that not only that salvation is found in Christ, but a renewal of our life is found in Christ, and the ability to live and to grow as the image of God. And that is what it truly means to be human. And to choose to reject God's created ordinances is to choose to live in a way that isn't befitting to human beings created in God's image, to reflect him, to reflect his love, to reflect his commitment, uh, to reflect what he has done and and, uh, what he continues to do and what what he will continue to do. And so our calling as Christians is... Again, as I said, to repeat it, to speak the truth in love and to be active in our communities, to also share that, especially, and this is central, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Where is our identity found? We don't choose our identity. Our identity is given to us by God. And so we, first of all, need to find our identity in Christ and encourage other people to find their identity in Christ as well. And that is is where real fulfillment is to be found. Not in pride, not in Pride Month, uh, not in the rainbow flag, but in the real rainbow, the rainbow that God put in the heavens uh, as a remembrance of the promise that he made to creation. So that's all for this episode, and that's all for this uh, series of episodes dealing with Pride Month. If you did find it helpful, please do pass it on. Pass on the link to the uh, the channel on on Anchor to the podcast or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you find your podcast. Once again, this is only this is an audio only episode uh, for this time and for the next couple of weeks. It'll probably be the same thing until I return to Canada and have my uh, all my equipment back again, and uh, until I'm able to do that and produce uh, Rumble videos as well. So until next time, may God bless you. May God help us all. When we deal with these challenging issues in our society, help us all to be, first of all, people who know him and to be people who know his word and who know uh, how he would have us live. And knowing that, knowing him, and really truly knowing him, be people who stand firm and take action.